Okay, so let's read the, the psalm together. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol Him, all peoples. For great is His steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Well, let's uh, begin with prayer. Father in heaven, we bow our heads to you, our great God in heaven, our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, we are thankful for this morning that we might come and gather as the people of God to worship, uh, to meet with you in the scriptures, in the fellowship of the saints. We pray for those who are absent because of travel or illness, that thou wouldst be uh, the great shepherd to be with them, the great physician to heal them. Uh, we pray particularly for Ronnie and his family. Pray for their health and well-being. As we come to this uh, shortest of psalms, pray that you would open our eyes, that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. Praise God. Amen. Okay, so Psalm 117 is the shortest psalm, the shortest chapter in the Bible. Uh, but just as great presence may be found in small boxes, so is this chapter. Great presents in small boxes. Ask any young woman who's been giving them a box containing an engagement ring. <laughs> the engagement ring is more than just some gold and perhaps a diamond. It's more than just some jewelry. It speaks volumes about what is in the heart of the giver as well as what is in the heart of the one to whom the gift is given. And it also speaks to all who see it on uh, the young woman's hand. Well, Psalm 117 is like that, small but speaking volumes. It says something of the Lord and of his people, and it says something to the entire world. So what does the psalm say about the Lord? Yeah. So here's where we go, interactive. Well, what does this psalm say? It's not, not hidden. Well, what is the psalm saying about the Lord? Okay. Okay, so two things. Um, it speaks about his, uh, his love, and his faithfulness. Does anybody else have a different translation? Okay, the truth. Okay, truth instead of faithfulness. Uh, any loving kindness uh, rather than steadfast love. It is his. Yeah. Okay, so let's think about the Lord's love. How does, again, the verse describe God's love to us? Okay, steadfast and great. Okay, 
So when you think of something that is steadfast, what do you think about? What comes to mind? Okay, something that's forever. Pardon? Forever and unfailing. Okay. Permanent. Permanent. Okay. What are the words? Loyal, solid, and firm. Forever, permanent, eternal. Yeah, that's, that captures uh, a couple of words I, I come up with. Immovable and unchangeable. So apart from the Lord, can you think of any, uh, any examples from the created order uh, of steadfast, something that's steadfast? Well, not like the Lord. Well, I understand that, but, but maybe by analogy. But often in Scripture, the heavens okay, are the heavens. compared, because comparatively speaking, they are steadfast and immovable. Immutable until God decides to move them with sanctions. Okay. Very good. The sun comes up every day. The sun comes up every day. Anything else that might come to mind as steadfast, rock solid, huh? The season. The season. Pardon? Mountains. Mountains. Yeah. We have that idea of being yeah. immovable, unchangeable. Yeah. You think of Mount Everest, yeah. the Rock of Gibraltar, yeah. these great granite mountains. Well, good. Those were uh, essentially the uh, the examples I thought of. Particularly the heavens, uh, the sun and the north star. The same sun that shines on us has given its light and warmth to every human being that has ever lived on this earth. The same sun that shone upon Adam and Eve is the sun that shines upon us. The same north star that sailors have navigated by for thousands of years is still there in the night sky to guide us. But God's loving kindness is infinitely more movable. And if this is a proper use of grammar, more unchanging than the sun and the north star and Mount Everest. Because those things, especially the, uh, the stars, will one day cease to be. But not God's love to us. In that sense, it is steadfast. Okay, so what do you think of when you think of something that is great? Because that's the other descriptive term. 
break with his steadfast love. So what comes to mind when something is in your mind great? Okay, so you think of okay, so you think of something large on a grand scale, perfect. What else? Okay, somewhat obvious. Well, in a uh, obvious to whom? <laughs> to all, okay. Um, think, think about the last movie you just thought was great. <laughs> Has that been a while? <laughs> or a book? <laughs> People use that word a lot. That was a great movie. That was a great football game. One for the ages. Well, we had one like that, one for the ages last week. But what, is the, what, what are they trying to say about that movie? Or book? Or game? I think it's the effect that it has on us. The effect that it has on you, okay. Because if we think that something is great, it means that we've been wowed by it, sort of overwhelmed by it, or overcome by it. Okay. And that can be both positive and negative. You can have great troubles. You can have great troubles. Where you're troubles. overpowered and overwhelmed, but you can also have great blessings where you're overpowered and overwhelmed by it. Okay. Okay. Well, I think it just has to do really with the effect it has on us, our response to it, whether we think it's something that's great or not. Okay. What do you think, Paul? I'm just saying it's not average or normal. It's, it's just not your. It's not this, yeah. Above and beyond. Sometimes what's great can become what's normal, right? <laughs> Do what? It stands out. It stands out. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. You're you're thinking along the same lines that I was thinking in uh, pondering this psalm. Again, I I thought about the sun, uh, how vast, how hot. If I think about a great movie or a book. Again, it's something about its effect on me. Uh, maybe for a number of reasons. Uh, the beauty of its art, uh, the, uh, the craft of uh, the author, a great piece of of artwork, a painting uh, that's by a master. You know, you. you you stand in awe on how magnificently this office painter was able to take 
paint out of a tube, mix them together, and put together a Rembrandt. You know, but it's just, and to ponder that greatness. Um, I think about a book, I might naturally say Pilgrim's Progress is a great book because of its literary greatness, but also because of the effect it has on the reader. Uh, when I think about a great movie, there's so many aspects of the movie that makes it great. Um, my son and I were watching the other night um, the American Institute of Films giving a Lifetime Achievement Award to John Williams. And you think about all of the great music or movies he has uh, written, being the Star Wars, being to um, Superman, to Jaws, to uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. It goes Schindler's List. It goes on and on and on. And all those components make this movie great. A movie that came to mind for me, you might have not seen, but to me it was a great movie, was Hugo. Because uh, the cinematography was just outstanding. Every every scene, every clip had had this great visual attraction to it, and it's combined with a great story, redemptive themes of putting broken lives together again. It's just a, for me a great movie. Well, that's something of of the English. Um, understanding of the word great. But the Hebrew word, though, here translated great, has something more of the idea of strong and overpowering and prevailing. It's captured something what what we have discussed in the uh, in our understanding of great. But let's look at some verses where this word is used. Can someone uh, turn to Genesis chapter 7 and read verses 18 to 19? The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth. All the high mountains under the whole heaven because. Okay, that's our word here uh, from Psalm 117. Uh, the love of the Lord is great, as is prevailing the great waters uh, in the flood, uh, overpowering and overtaking uh, the world. Uh, Exodus 17:11. Would someone else read that? Exodus. 17, verse 11. So it was when Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and when he let down his hand, Okay. So again, same word uh, has the idea of uh, prevailing in a military uh, conquest. Um, when Moses raised his hands, the uh, people of Israel prevailed. That was, they had this; they were great upon their enemies in that sense. 
Okay, Isaiah 42, verse 13. Can someone else read that? Isaiah 42, verse 13. The Lord goes out like a mighty man. Like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal. He cries out, he shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. Again, that's our word, great. Mighty, prevailing against his foes. And no foe stands before the Lord. Now, uh, lastly, Psalm 65, verse 3. prevailing, uh, when our sins are prevailing against us, uh, when they are great uh, against us, uh, God's love overcomes. So the point is that, uh, I take this from, uh, it's a quote from James Boyce in his commentary on uh, Psalm 117. <coughs> the point is that when this word great is used of the love of God for his people, it has the thought of God's love prevailing over any obstacle and over every enemy to attain to the object of God's love. There is nothing that can stand in God's way of his loving kindness shown to his people. It is so great it prevails over every obstacle. Can you think of a New Testament passage that might equate the same thought? Yeah, you want to go there for us? God's 
It is prevailing. It overcomes every obstacle, every enemy. Again, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, let's consider uh, next what the psalm says about his faithfulness, or as some of your versions have it, his truth. It says it is forever. Uh, the word rendered forever here, or excuse me, faithfulness, or truth, is from the Hebrew word, Amen. The word has the idea of supporting or carrying something, and so it came to mean something firm or unshakable. Uh, let's turn to Isaiah 22 for an example of the use of this word. Isaiah 22, we'll look at 22 to 24. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place. That word secure is the word. Amen. That's our word in Psalm 117. I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house. So again, that's the idea of the word, something firm and secure. That is his faithfulness, his truth. So remember that word the next time you read the word Amen in the scriptures, in a prayer, in the New Testament, or in the Gospels when Jesus says, Truly, truly I say to you, again, that is the word Amen. Firm and unshakable what I'm about to say to you. Matthew 5, verse 18, for truly, again, it's Amen. I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So those are some of the things this little Psalm 117 says about the Lord. His love is steadfast and great, prevailing toward us. His truth is firmly fixed pure, and it is eternal. 
But note that phrase, toward us. It's an important phrase. All of what we've just said about the Lord has you as its object. If that is true, eternally true, what makes us question his love to us on any given day? Not a rhetorical question. When things don't go right. It's when, what did Joni say? When things don't go right. When things don't go right. <laughs> the way we think they should go right, then we begin to question God's love for us, perhaps. Perhaps the strong don't, but the weak do. I'm in the weak. What else? Okay. Okay. So when when things are really pleasant and peaceful, even if it's just a brief time, that's no what we. Right, but when things turn upside down, the question is because our culture programs us to believe that things will always go like that. Right. Well, perhaps not only the culture programs us, but there's probably some human nature. Yeah, and a lot of churches will teach. Well, that's what I mean by our Okay, so because that kind of church is the church of the world. It's the worldly church, it's the church of the culture. It's the church that culture created is not the church of the bride of Christ that God has created. Okay. And that church then experiences what? A lot of cognitive dissonance. <laughs> <laughs> well, and they rise and fall. Because as long as things are going good, okay. people will stay there. Okay. But Cognitive dissonance, this just doesn't, it doesn't square, right? It's confusion, it causes us to doubt, and it creates a lot of persecution for us. Okay, good. So, again, here's how I just kind of briefly uh, put it. Notwithstanding the Bible that tells us that God's love for us is steadfast and true, what makes us question that on any given day or moment would be trouble qualified without quick relief. Prayer without quick answer, or the answer we, we want. But again, do troubles, afflictions, and delays change God's love for us? Is His love not still great towards us, prevailing, conquering every obstacle, every enemy, to show Himself loving and faithful to us? 
what the psalm says, sometimes it doesn't make sense. Right? Particularly in times of trouble and affliction. You see, that's why I love because in all my life, in all my times in the church, it's the only theology that has taught that that's the norm for me, in my experience. And I'm not saying that in other churches that I've been in that they haven't taught is to persevere and have faith through trials. because I think it's true to what the Bible teaches. Uh, look at Psalm 119. Uh, we'll go from the shortest chapter in Psalm to the longest chapter in the Bible and Psalm. Psalm 119. Look at particularly verses 75 to 77. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have what? Afflicted me. There is Psalm 17, 117 says, The faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Ah. In faithfulness, you have afflicted me. Affliction has its loving purposes. Uh, Lord willing, next week we'll look at the purposes of affliction uh, from Psalm 119. Suffice to say now, it has its purposes. And God afflicts us in his faithfulness. This love is still not apart from us. Look at the next verse. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. So there you have the circumstance of the day. Faithful, purposeful affliction trouble developed by God's love towards us. Something to ponder and to preach to yourself on those days when circumstances are not pleasant. That if the day of trouble has come upon you, it's not outside of God's purpose for you. In fact, He has purposed it for you. In faithfulness to you. Get your head kind of wrapped around that. The psalmist in uh, 
119. His particular case says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. That was the particular purpose God sent affliction to this psalmist. Terrible, terrible affliction. I hope we'll see next week. But what I want you to grasp this morning, as well as myself, is that um, times of trouble do not change the fact that God is not faithful to us, nor love us. In fact, he does, in the midst of all that. So let me ask you another question. So how does God love us? Psalm 117, great, prevailing, overpowering is his steadfast love for us. How would you, how would you say or describe how God loves you day by day? Okay, he provides for you. In what sense? Shelter. <laughs> That's right. Okay. He made me and he takes care of me. Yeah, that's great. He does sustain us through the encouragement of fellow children who will come along and help bear our burden. That's a, that is a demonstration of God's love for us. I'm pressing your heart because I want you to think about how you would describe how God loves you in a real sense. Jacob says, I ascribe to him everything that I have that he gives me, that I need to live. My house, my clothing comes from him. Barbara says, those who have come around me to support me in times of trouble uh, is God loving to me. Right. Yeah. It's love. I think I always think that he cares at this time and this place. He could easily have been my life was 100 years ago. Um, so, 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 and to think, as Jacob says, this is God's provision for me. 
You might think that more clearly if you were in some distant land where it's just subsistence living, trying to, you're not sure where your next meal is coming from, and yet it's come. Because God is faithful. So, how does God love us? He, one, forgives our sins because of Christ. He died to save sinners. He cares for us, Matthew 7. That's one of my favorite verses. I think I've shared this often. There's nothing more delightful to me in the morning to hear the birds chirping in the dawn because of what Jesus said. Your Father feeds them. How much more precious are you than the birds? He clothes the field with flowers that pass away. Well, how much more precious are you than the field which are here today and tomorrow cast into the oven? Um, he also loves us by giving us his word that we might live by it and his presence and help so that we will ultimately reach our eternal home with him. Okay, so lastly, look at what the psalm says to the people. All the peoples in all nations. It says, praise the Lord for his steadfast love and faithfulness to us. Now this is something quite remarkable, I think, to say to the nations. Remember Psalm 2, the nations rage and plot against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In that light, we would not be surprised if Psalm 117 said to the nations, Kiss the sun, lest he dash you in pieces with a rod of iron. That's not what it says. But question, if you took a poll of non-Christians in America and asked them, What message do you hear from Christians about God towards you? What would they say? With God, yeah. <laughs> but presumably they understand you're a Christian. What would be the prevailing message that they hear? Okay. Yeah, Jacob? God loves you as a wonderful Oh, yeah, you might, you might hear it. God loves you. Yeah, well, I, I, I might... Say they would hear um, his judgment cometh and that right soon. His judgment cometh and that right soon. You know where that comes from in the Bible? If someone finds it, let me know. I don't think it's in the Bible. That's a quote from the Shawshank Redemption movie. <laughs> Uh, the warden has this plaque over his safe. The safe he happens to keep his double set of books in, right? Judgment cometh, his judgment cometh in that right thing. Well, what should be the great, great the sense of prevailing, overpowering message be of the Christian church to the world? Jesus saved. God loves sinners. 
that God loves us and is eternally true to us. But if you say that to the world, you have to be able to say who God is. That's what we've been studying with Ronnie, his attributes, his perfections, his character, and what God's love means to those who don't know God. That's why I ask you to think about what God's love means to you, how it's expressing you, because you're going to have to share that with an unbelieving world who don't know God. And when you tell them, God, I'm sharing with you a God who loves me, who made me. Now, there are some presuppositions there you don't have to equivocate on. God made me. God is creator. He made this earth. You don't have to go there with them to argue that point. Just presuppose it. But when you say, and God has loved me, that's the God I'm sharing with you, then they say, well, tell me how. You know? Have a ready answer. And how God has loved you. The overpowering, prevailing message might be, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. John 3, 16 and 17. That's a message of hope. I'll go back to the Shawshank Redemption. Andy Dufresne says to his friend Fred in prison, uh, remember, hope is a good thing. Maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. Well, the encouragement is at some point, all the nations will praise and extol God. Uh, quickly, we'll look at Revelation chapter 7. And we'll end here. In Revelation 7, um, you have uh, verse 4 and following the multitude from the sons of Israel, but you also have the nations gathered. Verse 9. After this, I looked. And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. All nations will extol and praise God. The day is coming. God is faithful. It will come. In the meantime, we'll be supported by his faithfulness to us, his love to us, demonstrated in so many ways that we should appreciate and ponder that the things that support us come from the loving hand of God.
Well, we've gone over a little bit. That's a short psalm, the shortest psalm in the Bible. Uh, but it's really packed full of uh, great things. 